technical stuff. That's, that's always the hardest. Um, and I really have a lot of experience doing this, and so I think it's kind of funny that it's come down to that. Okay, thank you. I'm honored to be the guest lecturer for the day. As a social and cultural historian of France during World War II, I have a deep interest in the French Revolution and its legacy throughout the 19th and 20th century. My current research focuses on the mobilization of society in total war, specifically looking at how requisitions and voluntary collection drives impacted daily life. I'm telling you this because it might explain some of the idiosyncrasies of my slides. So we'll see if you can figure that out. The Marseillaise, the French national anthem. It's one of the most enduring legacies of the French Revolution. But the importance of the Marseillaise is not limited to the French nation. Despite its use in subsequent French revolutionary upheavals of 1830, 1848, and 1871. Indeed, the Marseillaise is the anthem of world revolution. The Russian revolutionaries would adopt it in 1917. Spanish Republican forces would sing it in 1931. Poles would sing it to protest Soviet aggression in 1956. And even the Chinese demonstrators at Tiananmen Square had a radio broadcasting the Marseillaise. Clearly, something about this song resonates with revolutionaries. What is that? And more broadly, why is the French Revolution the revolution that has provided the script for world revolutions. How many of you speak French? Oh, excellent. Okay. How many of you have actually read the actual text of the Marseillaise? Or know it? I got a couple hands. Oh, okay, good. Well, now I've given it to you, right? Um, I'm going to play it again and um, go through the first stanza with you. I initially thought I would try singing it for you, um, but <laughs> like I said, I'm recovering from a nasty cold. Uh, I don't quite have the necessary lung power to do it justice, so I might sing along, but I have some, some backup here, okay? So, let's, uh, does that actually work? Yeah, there we go. Okay. So. We'll skip forward a little bit. This guy kind of takes some time, time to start. Oh. oh, no, no, no. No, I got it, I got it. It's okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. If you know it, you can sing along. Enfants de la patrie, le jour de gloire est arrivé. Okay, forward, children of the fatherland. The day of glory has arrived. So we're all together, we're a national movement, and this is our moment for glory. So what's against us? Contre nous de la tyrannie, les tondards sanglants élevés. So, against us, the blood-soaked banner of tyranny. Now, tyranny is kind of a vague word. They know that it's violent because it has a, it's waving a bloody banner. Does the song give any more sense of what that might be? It's my favorite part. Dans les campagnes 
sur ces féroces soldats. Ils viennent jusque dans nos bras, égorer vos fils de compagnes. Ok, do you hear in the countryside the bellowing of ferocious soldiers? They come into your arms to cut the throats of your sons and wives. So we have paranoia, fear of something that we can't hear, that we can hear but can't see, and a very real threat of violence against our homes, our families, our loved ones. So what do we do? Aux armes, citoyens, formez vos bataillons. Let's fight, let's fight, get your weapons, we're all in this together. All right, march on, march on, that an impure blood will water our fields. This is probably the most disturbing line, especially for our 21st century sensibilities. Besides the violence, you should also notice the evocation of an agricultural rural landscape, and maybe even the idea of property owners. These are our fields. All right, this is potent stuff. These are fighting words. If you look at the rest of the text on your handout, you'll see that I bold-faced and underlined words that set up a powerful opposition between the supporters of the revolution, described as children of the fatherland, citizens, proud warriors, French people, defenders of liberty, and those against ferocious soldiers, tyranny, hordes of slaves, traitors, conspiratorial kings, mercenary phalanxes, vile despots, bloodthirsty tyrants, accomplices of Bouillet, that's the name I'll have to explain later, and my favorite, pitiless tigers who tear at their mother's breast. There's not much room for compromise here. You're either with us or you're against us, and if you're against us, your blood will flow. I wanted you to listen to the text of the Marseillaise, one of the bloodiest national anthems in the history of the world, because I think it captures all the optimism and the terror, the hope and the fear of the French Revolution. By completely overthrowing the established social order, the French Revolution opened new horizons where truly anything was possible. But that can also be incredibly terrifying. I also began with the Marseillaise for another reason. It was written by Rouget de Lille, an army officer stationed in Strasbourg, as a war song for the Rhine army. And it was written immediately after France's declaration of war against Austria and Prussia in April 1792. This raises an important point to this lecture. The French Revolution is often presented as a purely national event, but I believe that the international context is crucial for understanding not only what caused the revolution, but more importantly, what kept the revolution going, and the incredible degree of violence and terror. So I have three goals for this lecture. First, as I mentioned, this is a survey of European history. So as much as I can, I will show how the French Revolution fits into the broader European and international context. Second, I'd like to tell you two interrelated stories. The first is the story of how the Marseillaise came to be the anthem of the revolution. And the second is the story of the rise and fall of Louis XVI. Not only is it a convenient way to periodize the revolution, but also it should give you a sense of how individuals experience this abrupt transformation from subject to citizen and from divine to a discredited monarchy. Finally, the take-home message for the day. If the state gets control of people under Louis XIV, now people want to get control of the state. The French Revolution will be the struggle of defining that people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Where does this begin? Why does this happen? Okay, let's look at the preconditions and immediate causes for the revolution and what I've called the crisis of the old regime. Um, this is on your, on your handout. Old regime is in quotation marks because it only became the old regime once the new regime was established in 1789, a marker of how much the revolutionaries considered what they were doing to be a complete break with the past. So why do revolutions happen? Revolutions don't happen necessarily because of the huge power of a revolutionary class, but they do happen because of the weakness of a governing class. This weakness comes from either failures in war or finance or both. In the French revolutionary case, it is both. So the two-sentence answer to explain the origins of the French Revolution, failures in war and finances will lead to the bankruptcy of the French crown in 1788, which results in a power vacuum. The French Revolution is the process by which that power vacuum is filled. I'd like to pick up the story where he left off last week with Professor Anderson's lecture on absolutism with the mixed legacy of Louis XIV. Louis XIV's pride, ambition, and wars of conquest made France a great power and put France at the center of European civilization and culture, setting the style for the 18th century. But at the same time, he left the country in massive debt without the means of paying it off in the long term. This legacy proves insurmountable for Louis' successors. Neither Louis XV nor Louis XVI could fill the Sun King's shoes. These well-intentioned but weak men struggled in vain to maintain France's great power status. But they were no match for the rising powers of Russia, Prussia, and Austria. So, one more. Yeah, here they are. Um, here we have Europe in 1715. And... Oh, great. Prussia, Russia, uh, Austria. Okay. To give you a sense of what France was up against, by the end of the 18th century, these three new, incredibly strong and innovative states, all based on the Prussian model of enlightened absolutism, would devour Poland through three wars of partition in 1772, 1793, and 1795. These are the big guns, right? Nor were Louis XIV's successors a match for Great Britain. In the 100 years from 1689 to 1789, half were spent in wars with Britain. What was at stake? Prestige, yes, but also control over the sources and supply for the luxuries that 18th century Europe craved so much. Furs, textiles, tobacco, coffee, but most importantly, sugar, and slaves to work the sugar plantations. One of the most important colonial possessions, which you can see on this map of the French colonies, was the island known as Saint-Domingue in French, or Santo Domingo in Spanish, right here, and is now present-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic. This single island produced one-third of the world's sugar supply in the 18th century. This is a huge dimension of the French economy. So France goes to war against Britain and Austria in the War of Austrian Succession, and Britain and Prussia in the Seven Years' War, and loses badly. This map shows the geographic extent of the Seven Years' War. What's it called in the United States? What's this? Oh, you guys are good. Okay, good. Just checking. Um, this is one of the first truly global conflicts in history, and a lot is at stake. 
India and Pakistan, or present-day India and Pakistan, Florida and Spain, but most importantly, importantly, control of the West Indies. The results were disastrous. These wars left France burdened with a colossal debt with little hope of reducing it. Just paying off the interest on the debt alone took up 60% of the revenue. So when Louis XVI comes to power, it's actually pretty, pretty easy to remember this political succession, Louis XIV, 15th, 16th. Um, I'll just be talking about the last Louis today. So what does he do? He immediately gets France involved in the American War of Independence to avenge their humiliation by the British and to consolidate their holdings in the West Indies. What was the result? France kept hold of their sugar colony on Saint-Domingue and a handful of other colonial possessions, but at a high price. Despite being on the winning side of this proxy war, the enormous expenditures deal the final blow to the finances of the French state. So here we have an image celebrating the independence of the United States of America. But take a close look. Do you guys notice anything funny about this? Okay, well, let's look at this closer. I bet you didn't realize that the heroes of the American Revolution were Franklin, Waddington, and Louis XVI. There. This is his shining moment of glory. <laughs> he gets his moment in the sun, and it's really all downhill from here. Um, it's not like Louis XVI. Louis. I'll try to drop the 16th from now on was unaware of the problems of France's finances. He realized that something had to be done about tax reform, but he was unable to overcome aristocratic resistance. That's another theme of History 5, I believe. Big men don't want to pay taxes, right? Big men still don't want to pay taxes. If you look at the next slide, you can see one of the problems. Basically, the people with the most land don't pay taxes. Here's the population of France by state. The clergy are 0.4%, the nobility are 1%, and they're exempt from paying the land tax. Bourgeoisie make up 8%, and the rest is the commons. So who's got the land? Clergy has 10% of the land, nobility has 20%. So that means that 30% of France's land is in the hands of 1.4% of the population, and they aren't being taxed for it. It was much easier to rely on indirect taxes on consumption, such as the taxes on salt, tobacco, and wine that fell disproportionately on the third estate. Abbe Siez, in his pamphlet, What is the Third Estate?, describes how this old structure didn't match the new situation. And I think you're reading that for this week, so you should all know this. What is the Third Estate? I heard it. Okay, good. What has it been until now in the political order? And what does it want to be? Very good. Your GSIs are noticing. Another problem, <clears throat> another problem facing efficient tax collection was the incredible messiness of the judicial and institutional structure of pre-revolutionary France. These areas right here, and the cross-hatched areas, Corsica, um, all had separate sovereign courts of appeal, and they're called the Parlement. Can everybody say Parlement? Parlement. See, they can speak French. <laughs> um, that were made up of aristocrats who had all bought the right to sit on the court and therefore had tax exemptions. It's not surprising that these guys blocked any attempt at tax reform. Also, the red lines, right here, and some right here, kind of all over the place, um, all of these red lines 
are internal customs barriers, where customs would have to be paid on goods brought in. The city of Paris also had a customs barrier around it, with 29 toll gates manned by an army of ruthless tax agents. So if you came into Paris, you had to pay, for your, pay a fee for food, drinks, and building materials that you were bringing into the city. We even had to pay an entrance fee. Tax, uh, oh, sorry. So, we have massive debt from these expensive wars and a social structure that doesn't allow for efficient, efficient taxation. On top of that, we have a real crisis of leadership. A more able administrator might have navigated France through this mess, but Louis XVI was not the man of the hour. You really have to feel sorry for the guy. Here he is with his double chin, stooped posture, and somewhat sleepy look. He's the very opposite of Louis XIV. He was withdrawn, solitary, and socially awkward. It took him seven years to consummate his marriage with Mary Antoinette, either because of a genital deformation or an inability to ejaculate. <laughs> There's actually a historical debate on this. His, I, I looked it up. There's <laughs> his lack of sexual prowess and his wife's perceived licentiousness was ridiculed in pornographic texts like the ones you saw on Tuesday featuring Marie Antoinette in some rather compromising positions. I think, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He disliked the life of the courts and preferred to spend his time on his two favorite hobbies. Ooh, I heard the first one, locksmithing. He had his own private forge above his apartment where he'd make locks and keys. And I'm sure Freud would have a lot of fun with locks and keys and <laughs> impotence. <laughs> um, his, second, his second hobby, hunting, yes. He would dutifully record his kills in a journal that he assiduously kept for 14 years, noting over 200,000 stags, boars, rabbits, and swallows. Except on July 14, 1789, all he wrote in his journal, nothing. No kills for the day. That was all that was, he was paying attention to. Well, we'll learn more about that. So, what happens? Now, in, in the... Uh, in your outline that I've given you, I've described three, yes. And the story that I'm gonna tell you, this is the story of, of three revolutions. The revolution of the Third Estate, the Popular Revolution in Paris, and the Peasant Revolution, okay? So I wanna keep that in mind, and here's how we get there. So what happens? In the summer of 1788, oh, actually I missed one on my outline. There's the uh, aristocratic revolution first. That's what I'm gonna talk about right now. So in the summer of 1788, a year before the revolution would break out, Louis XVI exiles these courts and tries a new tax, but he doesn't get away with it. There are revolts all over France, and the nobles pull off the tremendous feat of getting the ordinary people to take arms on behalf of the nobles' refusal to pay taxes. The people demand instead that Louis call the estates general, the meeting of a three-chambered body representing the three estates, the clergy, the, no the nobility, and the commons. In August 1788, the state declares bankruptcy, the government literally grinds to a halt, and Louis XVI realizes he doesn't have a choice. He convenes the Estates General for May 1789 in hopes of resolving the financial crisis. But this body hadn't met for 185 years. Nobody had any idea what the Estates General would do. They didn't even know how it would be made up or how it would be chosen. There was a complete vacuum of power. 
Now, now we're going to talk about why this vacuum is filled with the idea of popular sovereignty. As fate would have it, this happens at the same time as a series of terrible harvests. Just a month earlier, in July 1788, a powerful hailstorm swept northern France and destroyed much of the harvest. Bread prices began to soar, and to top it off, in the winter of 1788-1789, it was incredibly cold. And actually, I think I have a slide. Oops, sorry, I forgot about the uh, exiled parliament returns to Paris. And we have the hailstorm, July 13, 1788, that rips through northern France, has hailstones the size of acorns that kill small birds, I guess. <laughs> um, followed by that freezing winter, rivers freeze, that mobilizes mills, transport, and causes widespread flooding the following spring. And this graph shows grain prices from May 1788 to December 1789, and you can see how they're going to peak in the summer, this is July, 1789, right? So keep this in mind, the, this tension is going to keep rising for, throughout this period. Because agriculture was still the motor of the entire economy, the consequences eventually affected every sector. Urban employment fell by half, wages dropped. By 1789, national production was only half of the 1787 figure. So the political storm that was about to break would take place against a background of economic crisis and would be profoundly affected by it. Louis's invitation of his subjects to freely assemble and discuss the political future of the kingdom opened the floodgates of public opinion. Young, non-noble pamphleteers like Abbe Siez, who were heavily influenced by the ideas of Rousseau and other Enlightenment thinkers, began demanding that a states general vote as a single body rather than in separate orders. If they vote separately, the nobility and clergy will always override the third estate. So the king, the king eventually doubles the number of third estate representatives in response, and, but he still insists that they meet separately and have a little... Um, you can see how doubling of the third, the third estate, holding up the first and the second with the foot of justice. So at the same time, in preparation for the estates general, each state, each estate had to prepare lists of grievances called cahiers de doléances. One more French word. Okay, everybody. Cahiers de doléances. Good. I shouldn't have. Yeah. Cahiers de doléances. This is great. I'm going to keep doing this. Um, there are literally thousands of them. These cahiers, or grievance lists, but I like cahiers better. I'm going to keep saying that. Show that all three orders agreed on the need for sweeping reform of taxation, the judiciary, the Catholic Church, and the administration. But the predominant issue was the control of resources and claims of the privileged over those resources. So here's a typical example. And what you have here... Actually, I found this online. Um, is the first page of five pages, and the entire document contains 16 articles. Here's how it begins. And I'm, oh, sorry, folks. That's a, so I'm reading right here. Um, the inhabitants of the parish of Saint Arnoux humbly beg His Majesty, the ministers of His Council, and the deputies of the Estates General right there, to consider the following articles. And we have the first article, second article, third, and fourth. And 
you can see, okay, wanted to point out too, the, the phrase humbly beg, it's, um, it's written directly to the king, and it has this tone of respect. This is important. He, the demands listed here include the same tax for everybody, noble or commoner, the decrease in the price of salt, the establishment of public granaries for times of famine, remember, harvest failures, hungry people, and the articles on the following pages call for a standardization of the systems of weights and measure, which change by region, the removal of seniorial justice, and the last two relate to the nobility's hunting privileges. Now, if you've read the uh, August 4th decrees, this, some things will start to make sense here. They call, so in these articles, they, the peasants call for the reduction of the vast amount of pigeons that devastate the peasant seeds before they can sprout and the destruction of wildlife protected on nobles' preserves that eat the peasants' produce. This character is a nice summary of some of the demands of the peasants. The first panel, Lord, deliver us from Tollgate. That's right here, right? Those internal customs barriers. Shows a customs agent rifling through a woman's basket. And second, the second one, we have a peasant in a noble court where he's being judged not by a jury of his peers, but by a noble who's probably bought the right to be the judge. And he bought that right because Louis XIV started selling offices, and this just keeps going back, right? These grievances, these grievance lists also reveal the high degree of respect that the people had for their king, most open with the traditional sire or his majesty, and more than half begin with statements of enthusiastic praise for the monarch, over a third being references to his paternal virtues, because he eventually did have children. I forgot to mention that. Despite his flaws, Louis XVI was surprisingly well-loved by his people, who saw the king as a loving and wise father who would not tolerate the injustices visited on his subjects if only he knew what was really happening. This popular image of the king as father of the people persisted well into the early years of the revolution. Here he is distributing alms during the incredibly cold winter of 1788. And in this painting, if only in this painting, how precious is this image to all good Frenchmen? We have rural people of all ages kneeling before the portrait of Louis XVI. I want to stress the veneration here because it's extraordinary how quickly these attitudes will change. I would also like to point out that this benevolence, for the most part, did not extend to Marie Antoinette. They hated her for her extravagant lifestyle and always referred to her as that Austrian woman. So the Estates General finally convened in May 1789. Here they are parading into Versailles. This is a big deal. Look at how far this procession goes. You can trace it. And I think this is just the nobility, or just the clergy, judging from the, the clothing. It's not even everybody. Things got off to a bad start. The clergy and nobility insist on meeting in their separate chambers. After a six-week stalemate, controversy reached a fevered pitch. Bread prices rose, continued to rise, and public order began to break down. Abbe Siez convinced the Third Estate to meet on their own. Over the next few days, some democratically-minded priests began to break ranks and join them. And in mid-June, at Siez's urging, they stopped calling themselves the Third Estate and adopted, adopted the name the National Assembly. With this act, they claimed sovereignty for themselves. So they become the nation. 
Maybe they don't even realize the implication of this, but they've filled the power vacuum here. Three days later, after several days of tense negotiations, they arrive in the morning at their meeting hall to find that they've been locked out. After standing around in the rain for a couple hours, they find an indoor tennis court. The game is actually more like squash, I think. Um, you can see the... Yeah. And uh, they vow to not go home until they had drawn up a written constitution for all of France. So essentially, they begin legislating as if they're the only game in town. So this is kind of like a sit-in. The next week, the next week saw a game of chicken played by king and assembly, each daring the other to take the first step. The king stalls for time in order to call out thousands of his troops to Paris for his protection. Paris is hungry, and rumors spread. And on July 12th, all hell breaks loose. Law and order breaks down. People begin sacking and burning the toll barriers surrounding Paris. It's actually one of the first acts of the revolution that people don't, don't usually think about. A day later, crowds storm army storehouses to get weapons, and on July 14th, they storm the Bastille, the ultimate symbol of royal despotism. The royal guards inside panic and fire on the crowd. The Paris militia sides with the people and blast the doors open. The governor of the garrison tries to negotiate a surrender in return for the safe conduct of his men, but he gets his head hacked off with a kitchen knife, which is then stuck on a pike and paraded around the streets of Paris. It turns out that the Bastille only had seven prisoners, four forgers, two lunatics, lunatics and one dissipated young nobleman, no weapons, and a huge pile of banned books. But the event itself had tremendous symbolic value. Within days, the news is spread through woodcuts and newspapers throughout France. Here's one of them. And the title of this newspaper is a Memorable Tale of the Siege of the Bastille. But what I'd like you to notice, because I started with Marseillaise, does anybody see what, what's this right here? Can anybody tell what this is? Any guess? It's a song. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it is a song. Okay, I, I was, that was too hard. And I realized you can't actually read that writing from, from where you are. Um, it's very small. It, it says couplets. Couplets dedicated to the nation. And it's about the men who took the Bastille. But you can tell it's a song because under the title, it says, um, Tune in the French Guard. And so um, the way that this would work is you'd print a song, and you'd have the, the lyrics would be in verse, and then you just write the name of the tune, kind of like Old MacDonald had a farm, and then you know how to sing the song, right? Um, I wasn't able to find the sheet music for the song uh, in the French Guards, so I won't get to sing the memorable siege of the taking of the Bastille for you, but maybe next time. <laughs> in any case, I wanted to point this out because song, like images and print, is a very common way for transmitting information at this time, and it's, along with rumor, um, one of the most important, maybe one of the most important means to, to pass information um, in illiterate populations. So they're writing songs all the time during this, this time period. Finally, the last image of the Bastille, the Bastille is a well-known painting, but I wanted to point out these guys up here. And you probably can't make them out, but 
They're tearing down the fortress stone by stone. And just like the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall, there was a curio trade in Bastille debris. If you go to the Musée Carnavalet in Paris, you can still see a carved replica of the Bastille made from one of these salvaged stones. It's pretty cool. So back to our story. Besides its symbolic importance, the conquest of the Bastille showed that the king had lost control over the capital. He has no choice but to return to Paris on July 17th, where he accepts the tricolor flag, the blue, white, and red, or the, yeah, the tricolor flag, <laughs> and acknowledges the National Assembly. As the news of these revolutionary events in Paris starts trickling into the countryside, it sets off a rural panic that spreads through the French, spreads throughout the French countryside. It's in the areas in red on this map. Peasants claim to see or hear brigands. They're about to attack their communities. And often in areas near borders, these imagined enemies took the form of foreign armies. This is kind of like the fear evoked in the Marseillaise. Do you hear in the fields the bellowing of these ferocious soldiers? In some areas, peasants stormed the castles of their lords and burned the archives containing the documents of their feudal vassalage. So this is the peasant revolution. In other areas, peasants actually banded with nobles to form common defense networks against this imagined threat. When the National Assembly began hearing reports of this rural uprising, they took radical action. Beginning in the evening session of August 4th, the National Assembly passed a series of decrees abolishing all fiscal, juridical, and social privileges, and by August 11th, the feudal regime in its entirety was abolished. Right, so here's the night of August 4th. And here's how this complete overturning of the old order was represented. This is the world turned upside down, or the world turned right side up, depending on your perspective. Here we have a peasant woman bearing the weight of a noblewoman and a nun before August 4th. And after August 4th, she's riding the back of the noblewoman and is nursing a baby. We have the same situation for the male peasant. Here he is carrying the priest who has various religious titles coming out of his pocket and a noble whose sword says red with blood. The peasant has salt taxes and labor duties stuffed into his pocket and he leans on his scythe, which is wet with tears. You can't actually see the writing, but that's what it says. Finally, notice the rabbits. The Lord's rabbits are eating the peasant's lettuce, and the Lord's pigeons are eating his grain. This is really annoying if you're a peasant. After August 4th, the situation's reversed. The peasant's on top. He now has a sword with the words, full of courage, on the blade, and he's tamed the noble whose sword now says, to protect the nation. In his pocket, instead of taxes and feudal dues, he has a piece of paper that says peace and concord. The priest has a land tax coming out of his pocket, and he's carrying the scales of justice to mark liberty and relief for all people. Finally, as you've now probably all noticed, the peasant has killed that pesky rabbit and those little pigeons, or maybe pheasants, and his produce seems to be doing very well. So this August 4th decree, the August 4th decrees, are followed by the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which could proclaim equality before the law, that sovereignty resides in the nation, the basic civil liberties, and the freedom to engage in any profession, no matter what class and to which you were born. It takes one more popular insurrection to get Louis to actually sign the document, and that's where the market women of Paris march to Versailles and force the king to return to Paris. And I have the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen. So the market women marching to Versailles. And oops, not there yet. 
And, but from this point on, things calm down, and they start a series of systematic reforms. They, the National Assembly nationalizes church lands in order to refinance the French debt. Here's a caricature of that, defatting the clergy to pay the national debt. They reform the system of weights and measures. So we have leaders, uh, Graham, Frank, and, uh, oh, yeah, meters. Um, and finally, they create a series of 83 departments to replace that administrative mess that I showed you earlier. And there's something that I wanted to point out, actually. Um, they, they get rid of all of the names of the traditional, um, the, the traditional seats of authority. So, and they, instead of associating it with any um, historical name, they use nature. So everything is, almost all the departments are named after rivers or mountains or geographical features. And let's see if I can do this here. Um, you can actually trace the Loire River, which kind of goes right through here, just through the names of departments with the word Loire in them. Loire Intérieure, Maine-et-Loire, Indre-et-Loire, Loire-et-Cher, and then it's going to come down here, Saône-et-Loire, and it's going to end in the Loire. So we have the Loire River, same for the Rhône, we have the Pyrenees, Alps. Um, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very enlightened reform. Finally, by September 1791, they have a constitution. So I, I went quickly through this, but the question that I'm interested in is why doesn't the revolution end in 1791 with the proclamation of the constitution? They have a constitution, a representative body, they've refinanced the debt, and they've made reforms to taxation, administration, and the Catholic Church that people demanded in their grievance lists preceding the revolution. Well, I think there are three reasons why the revolution radicalizes, and I'll just discuss them very briefly. The first has to do with religion. The civil constitution of the clergy, passed in 1790, severed any jurisdictional connection between the French church and pope, and turned the clergy into salaried employees of the French state. The pope immediately condemns this and issues a papal bull excommunicating anyone who abides by this new constitution. And uh, here's one French patriot showing the pope what he can do with his papal bull. There we go. <laughs> but most people weren't so willing to face excommunication. So the French government, in turn, says that any church member who won't swear an oath to the civil constitution must resign their post. So this immediately polarizes the nation. Very soon, non-swearing priests were declared outlaws. If they so much as said a mass, this measure literally... Sorry. Non-swearing priests were declared outlaws if they said as much as a mass. And this measure literally created armies for the counter-revolution. This map shows the percentage of clergymen who took the oath in France. So in these areas, right here, um, there are relatively few oath-takers. So these are the areas that are most loyal to the Pope. And this region right here, the Vendée, is where you're going to have the area of intense counter-revolution and civil war. Over 150,000 people will be killed there. 
So the second reason revolution doesn't stop in 1791 has to do with the king and the queen. In June of 1791, the king and queen try to flee the country with the hopes of rallying foreign support for counter-revolution. But they're recognized in the little town of Varennes, near the eastern border with Germany, and forced to return to Paris. There are some images of the carriage. There, so here are some images. I think, yep, of the um, carriage being returned. It becomes very clear with this that the king doesn't support the revolution, and it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain the myth of a constitutional monarchy. There's actually a reference to this event in the second-to-last verse of the Marseillaise. The name of the general who helps plan the conspiracy is Bouillet. Right? I told you I'd tell you, tell you his name. So if you look at your text of the Marseillaise, you can see that it's the accomplices of Bouillet who are described as those pitiless tigers tearing at their mother's breast. So nearly overnight, Louis XVI loses all the goodwill that the French people still had for him. And here's an image. Oh, they return to Paris. This happens very quickly. Here's an image of people covering in black the word royal on the lottery office. And covering the crown on the golden crown inn. And Louis' double game is finally revealed. So here he is saying that he'll support the Constitution while simultaneously saying that he'll destroy it. The third and final reason has to do with war. So we can now come full circle, and I can finally tell you how the Marseillaise got its name. France declares war on Austria in April 1792. Roger de Lille, Lille, who was stationed in Strasbourg, (coughs) writes his war song for the Rhine army a week later. Though his song was published in newspapers throughout France and carried south by traveling merchants, it does not immediately become famous. If it had, it would probably be known as the Strasbourgeoise. The war goes badly, and it becomes clear that the war effort's collapsing. The king is fighting a war to lose the war, and that he wants the Austrians to come into Paris to help him crush the revolution. The Austrians cross the French border, and in July 1792, They declare the nation to be in danger. They begin collecting women's wedding rings, uh, leather and linens, help pay for clothes for the uh, wedding rings, leather and linens to pay for and clothe the volunteer army. And they make plans to melt down church bells into cannon. Um, here they are tearing down statues of Louis XIV. And tearing down statues again. Making them into cannon. They also did take church bells as well. Um, but most important, they immediately mobilize volunteers to fight. A contingent of troops from the southern city of Marseille volunteer and begin, and begin heading toward Paris. They adopt Rouget de Lille's war song as their own anthem and begin teaching it to people they meet along the way. The song quickly becomes known as the Marseillaise. Just as these volunteers arrive in Paris, the king of Prussia threatens to destroy the city if the king is harmed. In response, the people of Paris decide to bring down the monarch as a traitor. Oh, the dissemination of the Marseillaise. 
So here we have the overthrow of the monarchy. This is the largest civilian battle of the revolution. It occurs on August 10th, 1792, and it suspends the monarchy. This is often called the Second French Revolution. The first one brought a constitutional monarchy into being. The second will bring a republic. There's a bloody battle between the king's honor guard, the Swiss guards, and the National Guardsmen of Paris, aided by the Marseille volunteers. It is their participation in this battle that will help associate the Marseillaise with the founding act of the French Republic. Several hundred guardsmen are killed. The Parisians triumph. It's a very bloody battle. Monarchy is suspended. And the Republic is declared on September 21st, 1792. You can see some of these images. The Declaration of the Republic coincided with one more significant event for the understanding of the Marseillaise. On September 20th, volunteers fighting in the name of the Republic, fighting as the First People's Army, meet the Austrians, who are just a couple days' march from Paris at Valmy. Singing the Marseillaise, they beat back the Austrians and saved the Republic. Valmy was the beginning of almost 23 years of uninterrupted warfare against foreign foes. And this is the story that Professor Anderson will pick up next week with Napoleon. And this seems like the fitting end for our story about the Marseillaise, but I don't think Valmy and the Revolutionary Wars sufficiently capture the essence of the Marseillaise. For that, I'd like to conclude with the execution of Louis XVI. Louis is tried, he's convicted, but only on a slim margin, 360 to 361. This gives you a sense of how deeply divided this nation is. They have the execution on the right bank of Paris before a crowd of 100,000 people. He removes his coat and opens his shirt collar. After hesitating, he lets, the, he lets the executioner's oops, too quick. Lets the executioner's assistants tie his hands and cut his hair before climbing the scaffold steps. He tries to speak to the crowd, but the National Guard drowns him out through loud drum rolls. He's attached to the plank, the blade falls, and his head is held up by the executioner. With this act, the revolution makes a violent break with the French past, and in doing so, issues a defiant challenge to the rest of Europe. The revolutionary Danton said that at that moment, France threw down its gauntlet to Europe, and that gauntlet was the head of a king. This engraving is one of the very few artistic representations of the severed head of Louis XVI. It is addressed to the crowned heads of Europe. The caption reads, Monday, 21st of January, 1793, at 10.15 a.m. The tyrant fell beneath the sword of the laws, this great act of justice appalled the aristocracy, destroyed the superstition of royalty, and created the republic. It stamps a great character on the National Convention and renders it worthy of the confidence of the French. In vain did an audacious faction and some insidious orators exhaust all the resources of slander, trickery, and petty quarreling. The courage of the Republicans triumphed. The majority of the Convention remained unshakable in its principles, and the genius of intrigue yielded to the genius of liberty and the ascendancy of virtue. It's signed by Maximilien Robespierre. So why do I think that this is the proper story, proper end for the story of the Marseillaise? Just below the head, 
under the dripping blood are the words from the Marseillaise, Qu'un sang impur abreuve nos sillons. Let impure blood water our fields. Here, the shedding of impure blood takes on its widest possible meaning. This warning is not just directed to the foreign enemies or the crown heads of Europe, but to the enemy within. And it is Robespierre who will lead the attempt to purify the French nation, rid the French nation of its own impure blood through the max executions of the terror. And I will leave you with that. Thank you. I apologize for my sickness. <laughs> There's time for questions. Oh, God. And I suspect there are plenty. <laughs> yes. Could you describe further what happened during the terror? Can I get some help here? <laughs> I'm sorry. Can I actually pass this? <laughs> I'm sorry. I am. I'm about ready to pass out here. <laughs> oh, Chad. I, I, I need to get some water. Okay. Okay. Um, well. That, hold on. I'm gonna so, pass this over. Okay. Yeah, well. What happened in the reign of terror? What happened in the reign of terror is that politics began again these wonderful songs of union. Of course, what Chad has shown is that they're mainly directed against fellow Frenchmen and women uh, with sort of nods to the uh, surrounding foreign armies. But once the Republic gets in power, the Republicans begin to debate among themselves and divide among themselves. And I don't know who is exactly to blame. There's a large controversy uh, on whether the terror was a natural response to a country fighting for its life uh, by foreign invaders and um, counter-revolution at home, particularly in those northwestern provinces, the Vendée that, that Chad shows you. So this causes great paranoia and suspicion. And some of the revolutionaries think moderation and decentralization is the appropriate response. Others think greater centralization and uh, go forth towards the enemies within is the best response. And so they begin to kill each other. And the group that has the support of the people of Paris, who are repeatedly brought in to sort of tip the balance that is going on within the assembly, uh, they are the ones that get to roll the heads of the losing parties. Uh, you, I'm sure you've got more to, to add to that. No? Uh, it's too bad we don't have a picture of young Saint-Just, who is what? How old is he? About 26? He's just a kid, and he's one of the uh, main members of the Committee of Public Safety who is really out to uh, guillotine as many internal enemies as he can find. Are there any other questions? Yes. Citizen Louis, what would they have done if they didn't execute? One vote. That was a shock to me, Chad. One vote. I, I don't know. I, I am. Um, oh, jeez. I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, that's, that's an interesting counterfactual. I don't know. Do revolutionaries ever worry about who wins votes? Uh, later on, we will hear about the Bolsheviks. Uh, the Bolsheviks is a word that means the majority. And Lenin's group took that name for themselves when they decided to hold a vote after the people against their position had gone out of the room to go to the bathroom or, or get a, a beer or something like that. They're called the Mensheviks, the minority. Uh, but in fact, the, the Mensheviks were a lot more numerous than the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks did not let that stop them. So I suspect had that one person not voted to behead Louis, uh, he would have been beheaded anyway. That is my suspicion. And I suspect that the one who cast the deciding vote, let's call him a superdelegate, uh, had an awful lot of people twisting his arm before he cast that vote. Um, there's a lot of singing going on, and there's a lot of voting, but there's also a lot of violence, a lot of intimidation, and particularly the clubs in Paris, the organization of the various uh, Saint-Coulot, as they're called, the ordinary people of Paris, were repeatedly used as kinds of gangs to come into the chamber and intimidate uh, people that those who, who had contacts with the gangs wanted to shut up. Anything else? I hope these answers are right. <laughs> yes? The Battle of Valmy, what's its significance? That is the furthest extent of foreign armies into France. And that is when the Republic rallied itself and stopped these, uh, what do we call them, tigers? Uh, tearing the breasts off of their own mothers? Uh, the Austrians and the, and the Duke of Brunswick and uh, the Prussians, etc. So the significance of that is the Republic survived. And, uh, the achievement is credited, therefore, to the Republicans. It is a wonderful example of how a domestic conflict between different groups in a country gets intertwined with a foreign conflict. Uh, France, as you know, has not been innocent in the last century. And I thought the partition of Poland looked, looked like the big bad guys are only the Prussians, the Russians, and the Austrians. But the French had been mixing in with Poland a lot as well. So what is, what is happening here is international politics is being entwined with a power struggle in France. And uh, the, the Jacobins, who were momentarily ascendant, managed to tar their enemies with the charge that they're really in cahoots with foreign powers. And then when various uh, members of the opposing side, including a, an opposing general, get scared of staying in France and flee the country and join the other side, that just adds to this paranoia and fuels the myth that the opponents of the Jacobins, the opponents of the, of the Committee of Public Safety are all really jackals of foreign powers. Yes? What did they do about the starvation? What did they do about the starvation? You want to talk about the maximum? Pardon? I, I, no, I'm, I, I really Chad am not doing Chad is well. <laughs> holding on to the lectern. If you had seen him yesterday, you would believe in the resurrection. Because he, <laughs> I was really wondering all night if he was going to be able to stagger in. Uh, I, I thank you for your... <laughs> <laughs>
Do you want to lie down? I've no, got the, I, I, really I know the Heimlich maneuver, but I don't think it's really what we need at this moment. No, I, just, I, just, I, I really can't. How did they deal with starvation? Well, for one thing, the peasants simply took law into their own hands and broke into uh, the chateaus and stole the, the silver and everything else. But another thing is in the city of Paris, um, Robespierre was in support of price controls called the maximum. And this was a way of making grain affordable uh, by putting a, a price control on top. It couldn't go any higher than a certain amount. The problem is, is you're not going to be able to get peasants to sell their grain to the Parisians if they're not going to make the profits that they want. So this is another big quarrel going on within the revolution. And it becomes, in part, uh, it's not quite as much a class conflict as say, 30 years ago, uh, French historians thought. But there is a kind of, of um, conflict between the Jacobins who want the city of Paris and themselves to decide everything and want a greatly centralized government, and the Girondin, the other party, whose base is really out in the provinces. And you could say the people who want to sell the grain rather than the people who want to put a price control on top of it to feed their base, the city of Paris. Anything else? Yes? Um, I was confused about the great fear. What was the psychology behind that? Like, why were you having a great fear? Uh, actually, I will try this one. <laughs> Sorry. You don't even have um, to hold it up. I'll do that. I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll hold. I, yeah, I will try this one. Sorry. I <laughs> I'm really hanging out here. I'm just <laughs> um, so, <laughs> psychology. Well, and then to be, <laughs> never mind. Um, the uh, the psychology of psychology of the great fear. Let's see if I can do this. Um, it's it's really complex, and I, I think that it comes down to what I was saying very earlier about um, these sort of incredible hopes raising at the same time incredible fears. So throughout this, this rise of um, you know, the bread prices rising, the economic crisis is going crazy, um, the countryside just doesn't, doesn't really know what's going on. And when they finally hear um, about the, um, the news of, of July, there's this fear that anarchy is gonna, has come, right? And that that um, all traditional sources of authority are gone. And actually, this is the, at this moment the the king's bureaucracy, the intendant. Some of them actually start leaving and fleeing for their lives. And so, I think that's that's one of the origins of where this where this fear comes from. Um, and yeah, I'll just. I'll try that. <laughs> also, I mean, you see a mass hysteria in part because nobody, as Chad points out, nobody really knows what's going on. They're getting their information from these woodcuts and songs. Uh, and that that's not necessarily a very reliable source of information. So quite often, here are these hungry peasants. They're, they're worried. They hear rumors that the nobles are going to grab uh, army officers and come in, but they also hear rumors, and this seems to be the more common one, that bands of robbers are simply lurking in the forest, 
to come out and get them. It's a kind of you know, folktale version of politics. And reports say that you get a, a, a cluster of hungry villagers and they look out their window and they just see some wood, poor woodcutter coming out of the, the forest and the word goes out, it's a brigand, it's a brigand. They all grab their pitchforks and their scythes and start hacking away. And of course, bloodshed then creates a dynamic of its own. And other people respond to that bloodshed with more bloodshed, and then the rumor spreads. And it, it really is a marvelous case of mass hysteria. There's a similar one going on in World War I among the German army, who think that somehow the Belgians are able to uh, beat back the entire uh, German army, and they, they go crazy. This, is, this happens a lot in history, and not only among illiterate populations. Yes? Very good question. Because I would say, Chad, and I'm intervening here just because I don't want to put you on the, on, uh, you know, take you off life support system here. I would say it is because Louis, for a while, goes along with the, with the revolution. And therefore, the other powers, although they do begin to make declarations, threatening declarations like touch a hair on his head and we're, we're coming for you, they don't want to, to intervene, to threaten him, and they also don't agree with his, each other. And one of the problems in uh, the rest of Europe defending itself against the French, and we'll see this particularly with Napoleon, is they can't really agree on a coalition that lasts for very long. It can last for short periods of time, and then their other interests bother them. One of the problems, the, the the state that you would expect to defend Louis the most would be the Austrians, because Marie, Marie Antoinette's brother is the emperor of Austria. But he's decided to go after the Turks and extend his territory in the east. So he is in part distracted by easy pickings that he thinks he can find in southeastern Europe. So he doesn't really uh, come in in time. It's a good question. If people knew what the future was going to be, they might act better. Anybody else? Yes. The civil constitution of the clergy essentially nationalizes the Catholic Church. and. Uh, as Chad pointed out, every Catholic priest is now a salaried employee of the state. That means the state can hire him and fire him. Now, the Catholic Church is an international church, and the Pope said, that doesn't work. You can't do that. Whereupon the French state, and this is in a sense a replay of the English Reformation, uh, only there's no divorce involved. The French state simply says, every priest to operate as a priest has to swear an oath to this civil constitution of the clergy. Some of them do because they are enthusiasts for the new French Revolution. Many of them do not. They don't want to be excommunicated. They don't want to be a salaried employee of the French state. They consider themselves part of a nation, a uh, European-wide church. What happens then, one of the things that happens is that Louis, who is a devout Catholic, will not take Holy Communion from a priest who is sworn 
the oath to the civil constitution of the clergy. And by not doing that, he makes the whole set of revolutionaries very, very suspicious of them. And in certain parts of the country, not only will the priests not swear the oath to this, they actually are supported by their parishioners and villagers. When the state then comes into those provinces and says, okay, guys, we're drafting you to go fight the Austrians, there are draft riots supported by the priests, and you get a mixture of populist, call it counter-revolutionary fervor, that has both a religious basis and an anti-draft basis. Obviously, this is a quarrel that didn't have to happen. But the revolutionaries are determined not just to end the privileges of the church, but to make the church a department of state. And Napoleon later on does the same thing. And you can say, really, up to the Third Republic in the 1870s, the French state treats the clergy as civil servants. Anything else? These are all excellent questions. Yes? Actually, take a look at this. It's probably a file that's too, got too many megabytes. No, 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 no. Why did the clergy in the northwest of France, for example, don't take the oath? This is a huge question. May I say this? This is a huge question. And sociologists have discovered, beginning in the early 20th century, that there is a kind of political map of France that goes back to, you could say, the 1750s, where these same territories, the dark over here, the ones that were most likely, where the clergy were most likely to take the oath, that is the bastion of the French left. And up there in the northwest is the bastion of the French right. And this has been the case since before there were elections to the French estates general. It continues on through democratic elections until today. What explains this extraordinary political and religious stability? Nobody knows, but one of the leading French anthropologists, sociologists, wants to argue that it's based upon family patterns. And you may remember the Western European family pattern that I talked about in an earlier lecture. This man, whose name is Emmanuel Todd, has argued that France has, in fact, four family patterns. And the religious counter-revolutionary areas are places where you have a very nuclear family, but also authoritarian, based partly on how property is inherited. In the southeast, what you have is a much more communitarian family, where people and also property is more likely to be evenly divided when the old man dies. 
and this tends to support the French left. I am summarizing very crudely. But basically, this is a conundrum. Why is it that some areas of France won't swear that oath? After all, just like, uh, as, as, as I said with Thomas More, he could have sworn the oath to the king and kept his fingers crossed, and he would have kept his head. But, but for these people, it is an absolute matter of salvation or not. They won't swear. And then when uh, the representatives on mission come to, to get uh, draft levies to go off and fight the Austrians and the Prussians, etc., they won't go. And some people have argued that the first genocide uh, in the modern world took place up there in the northwest of France when uh, armies are sent in to force these people to obey. They are defeated, and then the defeating general comes in and basically wipes out the population that has already been militarily defeated. Now, this, of course, is a hypothesis. In part, depends on what you call genocide. But this is a, this is a conflict that will continue in France right on up, you could say, to Vichy. Any other uh, questions? You were an extraordinarily well-informed uh, group of students. Thank you very much, Chad. Thank you. Thank you.